How are we doing today? It's great to, great to be with y'all. So we've been in this very creatively named series, church, and today we're going to wrap this sermon series up, all right? And in this series, we've been saying that our mission, vision, everything we do here at the Upper Room Fellowship is to transform lives that transform communities through knowing God, sharing life, and serving others. Today, we're going to talk about serving others. And I think the situation that many of us who are Christians have, and I, I, I think this is a difficult thing about being a Christian, is you know what you believe, you're excited about what you believe, and you want to reach people, but that's tough, right? And here's why. And this is just my opinion, but I have a microphone. But where I think that we've maybe screwed up as American Christians is, is for generations, evangelicals, that's conservative Christians, we have lived with this idea that we're the majority. And here's what happens. And this isn't just like a religious thing. In any culture, when a group feels like they're the majority, they speak with an authority they don't really have. This is just human nature. This isn't a religious thing. So when any, when any group thinks they're majority, then they get kind of really bold. And in their boldness, they can become disrespectful. They start influencing through their, the power of majority rather than their character. And so unfortunately for Christians in the West, and especially in the United States, we, for a while, we thought we were the majority. And maybe, maybe we were, it shouldn't have mattered, but we started speaking with an authority that we thought we, somehow we had. And when you speak with an authority because you think you're the majority, eventually you'll speak disrespectfully to other people. And this has undermined our credibility in our culture, and in a lot of ways has inoculated folks to the message of Jesus. Most people in America have heard the message of Jesus. The stumbling block isn't that they haven't heard the good news. The stumbling block is that they haven't maybe seen it lived in a way that makes them interested. With, and with gentleness and respect. So when describing the kind of cultural environment that we are living in, Leslie Newbegin, the great theologian and missiologist, wrote this. This is his observations of the Western world. He says, What we have is a pagan society whose public life is ruled by beliefs which are false. And because it is not a pre-Christian paganism, but a paganism born out of a rejection of Christianity, it is far tougher and more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian paganism with which foreign missionaries have been in contact during the past 200 years. Here, without the possibility of question, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. So as disciples of Jesus, we are, we're tasked with the mission of trying to reach people who are far from God because they have rejected the version of Christianity they've been presented. We live in a moment where, in history, where more people have access to the scripture and great Christian resources than any other time before. We have conferences, Instagram accounts, YouTube shows, live streams, there's probably biblical TikTok dance tutorials out there, the, right? The, all the commentaries from everything ever written in the history of humanity on the scripture, it's available. Never in history have we had more access to great Christian resources. Never before has the gospel been more accessible. Yet, at the same time in the Western world, we have more depression, more anxiety, more addiction, more suicide. And every new generation is leaving the church in greater numbers than the one before. It kind of reminds me, reminds me of a story I, I heard from the Olympics in 2004. 
2004, Matthew Edmonds was competing in the air rifle competition, and it was his last shot. And all he had to do was hit the target anywhere, and he was guaranteed gold, first place. So in his last shot, he, he aims, shoots, gets a bullseye, looks back at the scoreboard, and he goes from first place to eighth place. He had shot at the wrong target. I can't help but think that the big C church today is sometimes hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. And I, don't, I really don't want us to do that here. But I think we, to get this right, we have to get the message and the ministry of Jesus right. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Mark 1, 14. Mark 1, 14 says this. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So today we're just going to focus on these kind of three phrases in verse 15. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. This is kind of the beautiful, powerful message of Jesus basically summarized uh, all of his teachings there. So first, verse 15 begins with this phrase, the time has come. So when Jesus says the time has come, Jesus was referring to a very specific time that every good Jewish boy and girl in the first century Palestine would have understood. It's like when Katie was nine months pregnant, and she woke me up in the middle of the night on November 23rd, 2006, and said, the time has come. I knew exactly what she meant by that, right? There's no question about what she was referring to. I knew it was time to grab the bag and be calm, which I was definitely not, and drive to the hospital while she helped me through my breathing exercise, (laughs) because the time had come. But Jesus, when he says the time has come, he's referring to something that was built into the story of the Israelites, because their their story was defined by the Exodus, which was when God liberated the Israelites out of the land of the the oppressive foreign superpower, Egypt. Moses brings them into Mount Sinai, where God creates a covenant with them. We see that in Exodus 19, verse 5, which says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you 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 will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And so what happens? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you see they don't keep their side of the deal. The Israelites don't obey God. But eventually they enter into the promised land after a 40-year camping trip in the wilderness. They build a city, they build a temple, fall again into disobedience. A foreign military superpower comes in, takes them captive, destroys the city, destroys the temple sends them into exile. It's there in exile that the Old Testament prophets begin to write about God acting in human history again. They write about a decisive moment where Yahweh would enter into the world as the Messiah. The Old Testament refers to this time as the age to come or the day of the Lord. And so if you read the Old Testament, you see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi all talk about this age to come this day of the Lord. And according to the scripture, this new time will be marked by peace and joy and shalom and justice and healing and resurrection and new hearts and and a new spirit and a Holy Spirit falling on all God's people, all flesh experiencing the presence of God. So the Israelites, they come out of exile, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and they're waiting for this epic moment. But it does not come. 
The Old Testament ends. There's over 400 years of silence. But then finally, Jesus comes on the scene and announces, the time has come. Now back to Mark chapter 1. Then he says, the kingdom of God has come near. This was essentially the message and the ministry of Jesus. He came preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God. That's it. He demonstrated the reality of the kingdom of God. And so this is what we're invited into as followers of Jesus. To do what Jesus did. What did he do? He proclaimed and demonstrated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the intersection of God's desire for life being manifested and experienced the way it was intended to be in the first place. The kingdom of God is the reversal of everything that went wrong when sin entered the world. It's the restoration of all things. It is all things being restored to their original intent. Living as citizens of God's kingdom means living a life that's reordered by God. And it will be marked by healing and wholeness and peace and forgiveness and freedom and grace and love and the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright says this. He said, when Jesus healed people, he intended it to be clear that this wasn't just a foretaste of a future reality. This was reality itself. This is why all the New, the New Testament authors refer to the message of Jesus as what? The good news, right? The gospel. The gospel isn't just that Jesus died to save you from your sins, right? That's, that's part of it. But the good news of Jesus is that in a world marked by death and chaos and anxiety and pain and suffering and sickness and bondage to sin, Jesus comes on the scene and he says there's a new way of living here and now. And he says this reality, the kingdom of God has come near. You can grab it. You can touch it. Jesus didn't announce some philosophical, esoteric philosophy to be thought about. He comes announcing and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God here and now. Because the kingdom of God is a reality to be experienced. And Jesus demonstrated exactly what the kingdom looks like. He shows us broken people will be healed. right? Epileptics, paralytics, demoniacs, people with horrible skin diseases, a servant on the point of death, an old woman with a high fever, blind men, deaf men, mute men, a little girl who's already dead, an old woman with a hemorrhage, and on and on and on. The ministry of Jesus was experienced. It was tangible. It was real. It was practical. It had significant implications. I mean, think about it. When Jesus heals the paralytic, there, there's these tangible implications for that man's life, right? In his family, in his community. When he cleanses the leper, that man could go back into his family. He could work it with his hands again. He could be back in community again. It had significant social relational, physical, emotional, mental implications. The kingdom of God is not something that we just study in our quiet time. It's the way we serve others. It's something we give away as a gift to the world. And he's looking for individuals and communities who will become the kinds of people who would do the things that Jesus did. John 14, 12 says this, it says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Think about that. Jesus says we'll do greater things than he did. Now, there's a debate on what that means, exactly what greater means. Does he mean like more quantity or more quality? 
I don't know. There's a lot of Jesus followers. Maybe it means just like the quantity of miracles and blessings. Maybe he's talking about quality. I don't know. But whether it's quantity or quality, what we do know is we can participate in bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go to bless and serve people. This should be the way we operate in the world. Whether it's through generosity, a generous tip, 30, 50, 100%. Whether it's filling somebody's gas tank, maybe every time you fill up your gas tank, you look for it to fill up somebody else's gas tank. I don't know. We're looking for ways to share God's love. We're looking for ways to demonstrate the kingdom. Praying for people when we're out shopping. Looking for ways to bless. Listening to the Holy Spirit to give you words for people. Yeah, you might get it wrong sometimes. That means you're willing to risk failure to share God's love. That's okay. You got it wrong trying to bless somebody. That's okay. The kingdom of God is a reality to be experienced. That's why Jesus tells parables. Right? Because you can put yourself in parables. You can imagine what it's like to experience these stories that he tells. That's why worship is so important. Because it gets you out of your head and gets you into an experience, right? And then he'll say something like like in Matthew chapter 9. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Like, have you ever had an experience where you tried to explain something to someone? It's just not working. Eventually, you just go like, you had to be there. That's the kingdom of God. It has to be lived. It can't just be read about. When you read the Gospels, you see how transformative God's kingdom is, right? Sick people experience healing. Blind people receive sight. Religious people experience spiritual awakening. The outsiders are included. Sinners are forgiven. Broken people experience wholeness. The exhausted find rest. The oppressed are liberated. The spiritually imprisoned are set free. Anxious people find peace. And what we see over and over again is that Jesus wants to invite you into a life, not convert you to a religion. Right? That's why I'm here. I'm here because I've experienced Jesus, and Jesus has transformed my life. He's given me hope. He's given me a new identity. He's given me a new mindset. He's transformed the way I see myself and the way I see other people. He's helped me reconcile with people who have hurt me. He's given me peace, and he's given me joy. It's why this same verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we get this. So the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And in the third phrase, Jesus says, repent and believe. And what we've done to this phrase is we've tried to make it about having a religious conversion. Repentance means to change one, one's mind. And belief is not about getting the facts right. It's not like static. Belief is dynamic. Belief is living, participating, standing in the reality of what you've come to know and believe is true. So when these words come together in a first century context, it wasn't a challenge to like stop sinning, although that's part of it. But Jesus used repent and believe when he uses that, it's a call to transformation. It's called to trust him in a new way. So when Jesus says repent and believe, he was inviting his followers to give up their way of doing life and to trust him. To let go of how you think the world really works and learn a new reality that doesn't operate like the world operates. He says the first will be last, last will be first. He says the greatest will be the least. Least will be the greatest. He says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom's like good soil and produces a hundred times as much. 
King was like a hidden treasure that a man gave up everything to have. And then he says, some of you are going to get it, some of you aren't. It's for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Like the early church in the New Testament talked about what they experienced. If you read 1 John, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. The church was on fire for Jesus. They lived radical lives, not because it was convenient or comfortable. They lived radically different lives because of what they experienced. Jesus turned them upside down. And I'm afraid what's happening today in the church is, the church is now about trying to convince people of something we haven't yet experienced. And all the while, the world around us is being transformed by the kingdom of darkness. Rob Reimer, who is a professor of pastoral theology at Alliance Theological Seminary, says this. He says, in the culture we live in today, truth is considered relative, and all deities are considered equal paths to God. How can it be proved that Jesus is Lord of all? How can we show people that Jesus is unique? It is hard to persuade people with arguments when truth is viewed as personal, subjective, and relative. There has to be a demonstration of love and power that is persuasive beyond reason. We proclaim Jesus as Lord, and we witness to the gospel of the kingdom. But if we want to be effective, we must demonstrate that the king has come, that his kingdom is invading the darkness. We must demonstrate the message that this king of heaven has power to overcome evil and all of its effects. Just like the early church demonstrated this to its generation, we must operate in the power of God that releases those in bondage, that heals the brokenhearted, that frees people from the power of the enemy. In a pluralistic, synchronistic society where all deities are considered equal, only the unequal display of Jesus' power will convince people of the supremacy of Christ. So, how do we do the stuff of the kingdom? How do we serve others in this way? Well, Jesus gives us a clear answer in Acts. Acts 1, verse 8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he says to the church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be his witnesses. And to be the witnesses in the Greek is this word martyres. It means witness, testimony, or evidence. He's saying, you'll be my evidence when the Holy Spirit's working with you. You'll be someone whose life naturally points to the reality of the kingdom of God. The followers of Jesus will do the things of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll be filled with God's presence, and when presence comes upon you, you will have power, the ability to do what you couldn't do without his presence. You have the power to fulfill Jesus' mission. Jesus wants to give you his spirit to transform your life, to empower you for his purposes. Simon Ponsambi, in his book More, says this. When the Bible speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it is saying that one is consumed, taken over, saturated, complete, and replete with God's presence and power. To be filled with the Holy Spirit leaves no room to be filled with anything else. The reason much of the church is not doing the things of Jesus today is because we're filled with everything else other than the Holy Spirit. 
This is why Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 is so profound. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the first century context, in Roman culture, there was no concept of moderation. You had like a bunch of pagans that just became Christians. Now they're just learning how to be human again. And Paul will have to instruct them on how to behave in situations they didn't know were wrong. So, for example, they had these things called symposiums, which were all parties where all sorts of activities happened. But something that would happen at these symposiums is they would drink until they threw up, and then they'd drink more and just keep going. This is why Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be influenced by the way the world operates. Instead, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's saying there's two ways to live in the world. Being filled and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, or being under the influence of all sorts of things in the world. Like if he were here today, he might say, don't be consumed with social media. That leads to competition. It leads to a curated false identity. It leads to depression and anxiety. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be obsessed with politics, which will lead to fear and anger. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be under the influence of consumerism. Don't be under the influence of the cultural narratives of today, which allow you to operate as you as the center of the universe. Instead, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And when we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to serve others by demonstrating the kingdom of God. So I know a lot of you know all this stuff. So today I'm just reminding us what a church at at its best is. We are a community of ordinary people who surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we become a powerful presence wherever we go. Just recently I heard a story of a pastor who was preaching and he's preaching, and he just keeps hearing this 1,200 in his mind. 1,200. And he keeps preaching, but he could just like not get this 1,200 out of his head. He starts like stumbling over his words because he's, this like, it's distracting him. Finally, he's like, all right, I've got to stop. And so he stops, and he says, hey, church, I feel like the Lord wants to do something. I might be wrong. I'm just going to pray and see what's going on here. And so he stops and just prays, like, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? And he heard the Spirit say, there's a, there's a single mom here who needs $1,200. That's all he heard. And so he goes, okay, this is super weird, but I feel like there's a single mom here who needs $1,200. And from the back row, this woman begins to cry. She's got four children sitting with her in a back row, and she pulls an eviction notice out of her purse. She said, I come from, I've come from the motel across the street. It was her first time in the church. She needs $1,200 to get back in her apartment. So the pastor was like, we're going to pass the bucket a second time. Put as much cash as you can. We're going to give it to this lady. And they got just over $1,200, and they gave it to that woman. I've had some of these kind of things happen in my life, but I want to see more of that kind of thing in my life. And from my experience, life becomes much more of an adventure because God is always moving and working. And God just has a great style of the way he does things, right? Sneaky, subversive, so powerful. And I want to be part of that. I want to be aware. Because as you're listening to God, as you're walking in his presence, now we can say, Chris, stop your plans. I got something fun for you to do. Awareness of the Spirit of God makes the power of God come alive in us. 
Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we become aware of his closeness and begin to interact with his spirit, we grow. As we grow, we produce fruit. And a lot of Christians don't get that, so they try to kind of build their Christian lives mechanically, add stuff, build it. I got to do this, I got to do that. And that path leads to a religious, just to religious rituals that are a mechanical substitute for genuine organic growth. It's a terrible substitution. As the words of Bono, religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. Jesus uses one word for, for this type of relationship we're to have with the Spirit. John 15, 4. Abide. Abide. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide in me, he says, like a branch in a tree, and let my life flow through you. Abide. Is to live in the awareness of the Spirit of God in you. Christianity is not a theory to master, but a person to walk with. So when you hear God's voice, when you recognize the kingdom as reality to be experienced and demonstrated, what happens is you begin to live your life looking for opportunities to spread God's love. That will come with generosity. That will come with praying for the sick. You'll practice radically ordinary hospitality. You'll start delivering people from evil spirits. You'll start new businesses. God just releases you as a force to be reckoned with. And I'll end with this. Another quote by Simon Ponsby. Paul declared that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. 1 Corinthians 4.20. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we have derived words like dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit will be explosive. They will make a noise and have an impact. Their words, lives, and presence will change things. It is the fullness of that power that Paul wants us to enter into. Sadly, however, we often seem all talk and no power, impotent, academic, and anemic. We have placed God in a box. We have domesticated God and rarely want him to disturb us. But the scriptures reveal a God who is all power, who breaks our boxes, shatters our bonds, shakes whole rooms, and turns the world upside down and right side up. This Holy Spirit power was always the mark of men and women of God in Scripture. Power. So my encouragement to you as we finish this series is, let's be a place that knows God, shares life, and serves others for the transformation of ourselves and communities and the cities around us. Amen? Amen. Bruce is going to come and close us up. Powerful stuff, challenging stuff. You know, our, our ambition is not merely to live a Christian lifestyle where we follow principles and rules, but it's to lean into our Savior, to actually have a relationship with Him and hear His voice and walk with Him and and. That's where the fun begins. 
And if we just make this about stuff and about, you know, principles and do's and don'ts, we miss it all. And the world misses it too. They don't see the real Jesus. So I'm hoping you're as convicted as I was <laughs> by this message, that it stirred something in you, a desire to know him, to walk with him, to hear his voice, to obey his voice, and see what happens. I know the times that I've done that have been a great adventure. And I know there's, I've probably missed it more than I've gotten it right. But I'm learning and growing. And like Chris, I want to see more of that happening in my life and in all our lives. And what could happen to this community if they saw Jesus on the streets, if they felt him in their homes and their neighborhoods and because of the presence of, of people who who just showed Jesus, lived like him, loved like him. <laughs>